I want to start with a question to you. Do you think that you're a control freak? I know, kind of an abrupt way to start, but I just want to dive right into it this morning. Now, if you're like me, you probably think, I mean, my first instinct is to say, no, I'm not a control freak. Are you sure? Just give me a minute. In fact, just, why don't we just pray right now that the Holy Spirit would help all of us, myself included, to let him work in our hearts to give us joy, victory, and peace, and hope. Can you pray with me, please? So, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come, that you would help us understand the words of Scripture in a way that makes us new, in a way that gives us hope. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I'll ask the question again, is there a situation at home or at work or maybe with your finances or in your career or something that you are trying to control? Or is there a person you're trying to control? A coworker, adult child, uh, a spouse that you're trying to get to do what you want to do. Good luck on that last one there. <laughs> a lot of us do not think of ourselves as control freaks. I certainly don't. But you know what? If we were to ask the church staff here, do you think Dudley is a control freak or not? I am not sure what they would say. Which is why over my dead body will we ever do such a survey because I'm the boss. But I don't have control issues. Now, you truly may not have control issues, okay? And that, just some people aren't control freaks, right? So if that's the case, feel free during this sermon to nudge the person next to you to help them get the message, okay? Now, and if you both end up nudging each other, you're going to have to decide which one is really the control freak, okay? But for me, and maybe for you, if I dig just a little bit deeper... I discover I kind of do have some control, over-controlling tendencies. Let's start with worry. Psychologists tell us that worry is control on steroids. You know, I can't do anything about this situation, but at least I can worry, which makes me feel like I'm doing something productive, sort of. Sometimes we tr try to control other people. We do that in a couple ways. Sometimes we do that passively by dropping hints or making leading comments. So, for instance, if I were to say to someone on staff, say like our music people, really? So that's the music you've picked for this week. <laughs> no, I'm fine with it, really. No, really. No, no, just fine with it. But don't you think you'd be happier if you tried this instead? Right? Like, whose happiness are we talking about there? Right? Like the old saying, how many passive-aggressive people does it take to screw in a light bulb? Oh, never mind, I'll just sit here in the dark. Now, just for the record, that was a merely hypothetical sermon illustration. I've never actually done that, okay? Other times we control people more head-on, more aggressively. My wife had a friend who, when she was getting married, her mother tried to control every aspect of the wedding. Colors, flowers, you name it. Finally, she said, Mom, it's my wedding. And the mom said, No, dear, it's your marriage. The wedding is mine. Sometimes if we're worried about something, like, say, money, we try to control that fear by hoarding our money instead of giving some of it away, as God says to do. Sometimes we even try to control God. If all of our prayers are, heal me, fix me, bless me, make this situation work out this way, God, well, it's okay to pray those prayers, but if that's 95% of what we're praying, we're trying to control God. In short, over-controlling is when we try to move people or events to get our way, rather than stopping to ask God, 
what do you want done here? So who or what are you trying to control? Second question, how's that working for you? Is it bringing you joy? Is it giving you peace? Is it making your relationships better? Or do you feel anxious and tense as you try to control events and people? Here's the good news I want to tell you today. God frees us from the anxiety our controlling behavior creates, but not in the way we might expect. He doesn't say to us, oh, just stop controlling. Stop, trying, stop driving so hard. Stop being so controlling. Just be nicer. God doesn't say that. What he does is he helps us to realize that he is the one in control, and he has a plan, and when we get on board with his plan, we have victory, courage, confidence, and joy in our lives, and our worries begin to diminish. Sound good? Let me tell you how that works. I want to look at the life of Jacob in the Bible. And if you think you've got problems with control issues, whoa, boy howdy, Jacob was a total control freak. Last week we looked at Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and they're twins. And Esau comes out first, which made him the oldest, which in that culture meant that he would inherit the family fortune. But as they come out, Jacob is grabbing on to Esau's heel. So they name him Jacob, which means grabber, manipulator, basically control freak, right? Trying to control even his own birth. Now, Jacob, it turns out, turns out to be a mama's boy who likes to stay home and cook. But Esau was a hunter. And the Bible in several places tells us that Esau was a hairy man. I have no idea why that's important, but the Bible really wants us to know that Esau was a hairy man. So think Neanderthal. That's the vibe we're going for here. One day Esau came home from hunting and Jacob had made some red mush for supper. Mmm, tasty good. And Esau said, Esau's starving. Let him swallow red stuff. That is not my translation. That's what the Hebrew actually says. I, I told you, think Neanderthal. Jacob said, give me your inheritance and I'll give you some red stuff. And Esau said, hmm... Inheritance, red stuff. Inheritance, red stuff. Esau want red stuff. So he gave away his whole inheritance for a bowl of red oatmeal. Okay, maybe Esau had a full six-pack, but for sure he lacked a little plastic ring to hold it all together. <laughs> but in his own way, Esau is also a control freak because he is willing to sell out his inheritance to control a short-term hunger. And sometimes we do that. Right? So, for instance, to control sexual cravings or needs for adventure, some folks turn to pornography and with devastating results to relationships. The office bully who tries to get his way by intimidating folks is often trying to control feelings of insecurity he has. Maybe because growing up, he got messages that he didn't matter. And so to control that insecurity, he tries to intimidate and control others to make himself feel significant. To control some wound, fear, or craving will often sacrifice something of long-term value. Well, a few years after the red stuff debacle, Jacob plays another trick on Esau. Jacob disguises himself as Esau and goes to their father, Isaac, who is blind at this time, and steals Isaac's fatherly blessing, which was thought to contain almost magical power to make the eldest son prosperous. Well, when Esau finds out about that, he gets mad and he decides to kill Jacob. Again, if you think you've got problems in your family, right, you're not Jacob and Esau. You got that going for you, okay? So Jacob did what every mama's boy would do when a hairy man tries to kill him. 
he runs away. Right? And on his first night out, Jacob has a dream of a stairway to heaven, just like the Led Zeppelin song, only different. <laughs> and God says, Jacob, I am going to bless you. You're going to have 12 kids, which back then was a really good thing, and they're going to become the nation of Israel. And Jacob wakes up and he says this, if God will be with me and watch over me, and if he'll give me food to eat and clothes to wear, then the Lord will be my God. Well, that's big of him, isn't it? <laughs> right? I mean, you can do, you do this for me, God, and I'll do this favor for you, right? He is even trying to control God. He's tried to control his brother. He's tried to control the events of his life. And now he's trying to control even God. God, if you do this, God, if you do that, well, then I will do. Have you ever done that? Well, Jacob goes from there to his uncle Laban, who lives in what is today Iran, and Jacob falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. And Laban says, work seven years for me, and I will give you Rachel. You can marry her. So Jacob does that, but then on the wedding night, after seven years of hard work, on the wedding night, Laban puts Rachel's older sister, Leah, in Jacob's bed instead of Rachel, and shockingly, Jacob consummates the marriage anyway. Okay, what is up with that? Like, it could not have been that dark, right? What's going on? So then Jacob has to work another seven years to get Rachel, which was Laban's way of controlling Jacob to get more work out of him. Well, finally, the tension gets so bad between them that Jacob runs away with his family because that is often the result, almost always the result, of our over-controlling behaviors. When we try to control events or others, we end up breaking relationships right and left. I worked one summer as a chaplain in a hospital, and we used to have to write up our conversations with patients to show them to the supervisor so he could help us do a better job. And there was this one woman whose husband was dying, but I could not get her to talk about it at all. So I wrote up one of our very brief conversations in which she had said, oh, he was a great husband. Oh, you know, occasionally he'd do things like leave his socks on the floor, but he was great. So I showed it to my supervisor, and he circled the word socks, and he said, go ask her about the socks. And I thought, you want me to change her life with socks? And he said, there's something behind those socks other than feet. So I went back and I said, you know, the other day you mentioned that your husband would leave his socks on the floor. Did he do anything else like that? And out it all came. He had tried to control her every move. Controlled every penny she spent. He wouldn't let her get a job when she wanted to. To control his own fears about money, he became a workaholic, leaving her lonely. He tried to control her through verbal intimidation and even occasionally a threatening gesture. And so as he lay dying, her primary emotion was relief, followed quickly by guilt for feeling it. You see, when we try to control events, get them to go our way, when we try to control people, get them to do what we want them to do, we do real damage to the relationships around us. And the problem is, we learn how to do this very young, don't we? I mean, I see it in my own kids. I mean, they are masters at control, right? With each other, with me. Every other December, I take my two daughters to the Nutcracker. And we went last year, so we aren't going to go this year. But my six-year-old keeps asking to go. And when she asks, she looks at me with her big brown eyes, right? And this funny little look on her face. 
And it's the look of victory because she knows I'm going to break down and buy those tickets. Right. It's like we learn to control from day one. Okay, that is all the depressing news. So here's the point in the sermon where we turn toward the good news. The good news is this. Whatever you are struggling to control right now, finances, events, something at work, something in your neighborhood, another person, you can let go of that tension. But not, but not, but not so that you become a passive wimp who just lets stuff happen to you. Right? God's not into turning us into pass passive wimps. When we let go of control, here's what happens. We realize that there is someone who's in control. It's just not you. It's just not me. It's God. And when we take all of that energy that we spend trying to control everything and everyone like Jacob was doing, when we take that energy and put it toward what God is doing instead in our lives and in his world, then all the anxiety we feel as a result of our controlling behavior begins to go away. And in exchange, when we leave off our agenda and get on board with God's agenda, in exchange, we get courage, peace, victory, adventure, and joy. And that's what Jacob discovers. After he runs away from Laban, he hears that his brother Esau, whose inheritance he stole, remember, brother Esau is coming back to meet him after 20 years. And Jacob is afraid that Esau is going to kill him. So Jacob does a very brave thing. He sends his wife and children on in front of him to hide behind. And then he sends a bunch of sheep and cattle toward Esau to bribe him into not killing him. And then Jacob is left alone for a night. And the text says that he wrestled with a man. The text calls him a man, but Jacob by the end is just sure that he has wrestled with God himself. And then the man does this strange thing. It's, the text says that the man could not overcome Jacob. Well, if he's God, I mean, can't he win at wrestling? Well, of course he could. But you see, this is not a WWF match that God's trying to win. There's another kind of wrestling. It's the kind I do a lot of because, you see, I'm a father and I have a son. And my son loves to wrestle with me. Now, in a heartbeat, I could flatten him. Right? But there are two reasons I don't. One, he's got a good memory, and someday he's going to be 17. <laughs> but the real reason I don't just pin him and be done with it is that's not why I wrestle with him. I wrestle with my son because every boy has a desire to test his strength and see the metal he's made of. So I wrestle with my son to help him grow strong and brave and bold. I wrestle with my son because he wants to be like me, and that's one way he can kind of experiment with that. I wrestle with my son because I love to see the smile on his face when we wrestle. I wrestle with my son because I love the closeness and the bond I feel between us when we do. In short, I wrestle with my son because he is my son and because I love him. And it brings us closer. And it's through the wrestling that we do with God that God does a couple of things for us. He helps us find our strength. He makes us more like him. And he creates closeness between him and us as we wrestle with him in life. And he changes us. God says to Jacob, what is your name? Which is a very heavy question. Because the meaning of Jacob's name sums up his whole life. Manipulator. Anything to get ahead guy. Control freak. And so when he answers, Jacob, he's basically saying, guilty as charged. But then God says, you shall no longer be called Jacob. You shall be called Israel. And the word Israel means he who strives with God. 
He who strives with God. And strives with can have two connotations. Strives with God as in strives against God when we're trying to wrestle God to get him to do what we want to do. Strives against God. But there's another meaning of strives with. And that would be to strive alongside of God. To strive with God in what God is doing in the world. You see, another translation for the word Israel is God strives. Because you see, God also has a battle. He's fighting the devil. And he came himself in the person of Jesus to reverse all the damage that the devil has done in your life. The damage he's done in my life. The damage he's done in the world. And God calls us to fight alongside, to strive with him on his side in what he's trying to do in our lives and in your life and in the world. So here's a prayer that has been changing my life in the last couple of years. And I've given it to you before, but I want to give it to you again on the off chance that you're not yet praying it. And here's the prayer. God, here's what I want. Because that is a good prayer to pray. We need to be honest with God. God, here's the desire of my heart. Here's how I want this situation to work out. Here's what I want, Lord. But God, what are you doing in this situation? What do you want to do with this? financial problem or whatever it is. God, what are you doing in this situation? Show me so that I can get on board with you. And then once we see what God is doing in our lives and the world and get on board with what he's doing, life gets a lot easier. Now, I don't know about you, but in my life when I pray that prayer, it's not like there's this sort of rumble of thunder and then boom, there's the answer, right? That doesn't work that way for me. I know I'm a pastor, maybe it should, but that's not how it works for me. I have to wrestle with God around this. And wrestling is the right word. God, this is what I want. Why aren't you giving it to me? God, come on, come on, please make it work out this way. Please, 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 pretty please. <laughs> and as I do that, sometimes God says yes. Sometimes God says, no, I'm not going to give that to you. And I discover later that what I thought I wanted was going to be a disaster for me, and he had something better. Or the third thing God does is he shows me what he's trying to do in that situation. And that's always better because it brings peace and I can get on board with his plan. And I've seen him do this time and time and time again. And so now I'm starting to trust him. That even when things aren't working out the way I want, he's doing something different. And if I can figure that out, my life's going to be a whole lot better. And it's happened so many times now that I'm actually starting to trust my father. You see, it's just like me with my son. When I wrestle with my father in heaven, I discover just how much he loves me. And then I can take all of that energy that I spend trying to control everyone, the dance people, toward, put it toward working to what God's doing in my life and in the world, which is way easier. Because here's the thing, guys. When you're going where God is going, when you're going where God is going, you're going to get there. Because he's God. And he's going to make sure it happens. You see, our choice in life is not between either A, being over-controlling, driven people on the one hand, or B, passive wimps, just waiting around for God to do something for us on the other, right? Over-controlling, driving, or passive wimp, those are not our only choices. There's a third alternative. God, what are you doing in this financial problem that I've got? What are you doing in this relationship? What are you doing here at work? Show me so I can get on board. And so often the church's message has been, if you're an over-controlling, driven type A, come to church and we'll turn you into wimps. It'll be awesome. <laughs> we'll make you a wimp. You'll be happier that way. No. God takes all of our drive and channels it toward what he's doing in our lives and in the world. And then it is like sailing with the wind instead of against it because we are going where the God of the universe is headed. You see, when you wrestle with God and he wins, life is always better.
And that's what Jacob discovers. For the rest of his life, Jacob now strives with God as God's partner in the fight. From this wrestling match, he goes to reconcile with his brother Esau in a beautiful scene where he says, Esau, to see your face is like to see the face of God. And then his 12 sons become the nation of Israel, out of which comes Jesus. God doesn't turn Jacob into a passive wimp. He channels his drive toward God's great pursuit to reverse the damage the devil has done in our lives and in this world, to bring up there, down here, in your home and in the world. There's a man I know who I will call, uh, call Hank. And Hank's parents were divorced. And all growing up, Hank's dad was very, very controlling. And when Hank was in college, his dad threatened to cut him off financially and emotionally if Hank did not become a business major. His dad tried to control who Hank dated, who Hank's friends were, Hank's faith, which was in Jesus, which dad did not like at all. But Hank was kind of controlling in his own way as well. He'd argue and argue with his dad long past the point that it was clear that he was going to convince his dad of anything he'd keep arguing. And he'd also threaten to withdraw his love from his dad if dad didn't do what he wanted him to do. Well, when Hank was about 26, he wanted to go to Africa for a couple of months to help alleviate poverty there. And his dad just went ballistic, said Africa is beyond repair and that Hank would be wasting valuable time. And Hank would argue and argue and argue, trying to convince his dad to see things his way. And he'd pray, God, change my dad's mind, make my dad a different person. Come on, God, do it, do it, do it, do it. Control, control, control. But then, eventually, Hank started to pray the God, what are you doing in this situation prayer? Show me so I can get on board. And over time, not instantly, but over time, Hank began to start to think that maybe God could use this situation somehow to heal his family, which was very broken. So Hank started to show a little more love and respect to his stepmother, who he had always fought with. And he began trying to build a better relationship with his dad, not to convince him of anything, but just, just to love his dad because he was his dad. And then eventually, Hank, Hank finally said, Dad, I love you, and I respect you. You are my father. And I have heard your concerns about my future. And I know the fact you have those concerns means you love me. And for that, I'm really grateful, Dad. But I'm also an adult. And so, Dad, I got to do this Africa thing. But what I want you to know, Dad, what I want you to know is that whatever happens, I want us to have a really good relationship. Well, that was a different approach than trying to arm twist Dad to agree with him. And it started to warm things up between them. So Hank went to Africa. Well, when he got back, Hank visited his dad and stepmom for about a week before he went back home. And at one point in that week, his stepmom said to him, you know, the way you handled your dad, that was different. You stopped arguing with him. That was different. What was, what's that about? And Hank said, well, Jesus showed me a different way to do it. And his stepmom, who'd always been kind of cold not only toward Hank but to Jesus, started asking more questions about Jesus, warmed up to kind of both Hank and Jesus. And they spent the rest of that week talking about Jesus and what Jesus had done in Africa through Hank and all this stuff. So when it came time for Hank to go back to his home, his stepmom said, I need someone to keep talking to me about Jesus. Do you have any suggestions? Well, the only person Hank knew in that town was his mom. And even though it seemed kind of awkward for her to be the one to talk to her ex-husband's new wife about Jesus, mom said, I would love to. So mom and stepmom started talking. Eventually, the stepmom started following Jesus. And then it took some time, but over months and years, Hank's relationship with his father started to get a lot better. And then in the process, Hank's mom and stepmom started to meet once a week to pray together for Hank. And when Hank told that to a friend of his who was a marriage counselor, the counselor said, 
That's odd. Usually when the ex and current wife get together, it's to fight, not to pray. And Hank said, well, can I tell you why it's different with them? His name is Jesus. Hank stopped trying to control events and his father. Instead, asked God, what are you doing in this situation? Got on board with God's work to heal his family, and things were better. And God didn't turn Hank into a passive wimp. He channeled his energies, channeled his drive toward his fight against the damage the devil had done, not only in Hank's family, but in Africa as well. Hank struggled with God and with his dad, and now Hank struggles with, alongside God, in God's great battle against our common enemy, the devil. So who or what are you trying to control? And is it bringing you peace and joy? Or is it bringing you worry, fear, and broken relationships? This week, will you spend some time with your heavenly Father? And will you say to him, Father, I want to stop trying to control everything. I want you to be in control. So God, show me what you're doing so I can get on board. And then he will channel all your drive, not into trying to control everyone and everything, but into fighting alongside him in his great battle against the devil in your life and in this world. And he will not give up his fight for you. He will not give up his fight for me. He will not give up his fight for the east side. He will not give up his fight for this world until he has undone the damage the devil has caused in your life, in mine, on the east side and beyond. So what do you say? All you east side Jacobs and Jacobettes. <laughs> you ready to stop trying to control everything? And get on board with what God is doing? Because when we do that, together with him, in your life, in mine, in this world, we together are literally going to beat the hell out of the devil. So, Father, we come to you with our fears we come to you with our worries, our relationships, our finances, our health. We lay them at your feet, Father, asking only one question. What do you want to do with this? Show me so I can get on board with what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen.